At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout DC to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool. The show is brought to you by Rudus Metal Detectors, makers of the Alter 71. Discover new possibilities at rutus.com.pl. Helping hundreds of people annoy their families while driving in a car. This is the GDA Radio Podcast. Currently listening to the soothing sounds of T.G. Copperfield from his brand new album released this last Saturday, and it's called Magnolia. The song is called They Put the Fire Out. This is a world premiere for this song. It has never been aired prior to us playing it today. Uh, for those of you who know, T.G. Copperfield is uh, a friend of mine I met at a music festival it was a street festival here in uh, the neighboring city of bamberg germany uh, they had their jazz festival going on and i heard this guy on stage singing and uh, i kept thinking is david Byrne from the talking heads out here singing there's no way this uh and i forced my sister who had come over for my son's wedding and my wife to sit with me in the rain of the day and listen to these guys up on stage for the next hour. Afterwards, I purchased the album, met the band, had them autograph the CD, and uh, actually started writing with uh, Tilo, the singer, T.G. Copperfield himself. And uh, we've actually written back and forth quite a bit. I'd, uh, I'd put us in a good friends category, but uh, uh, hopefully I'll get, to see, get out there and get to see him again real soon. And like I said, that was They Put the... F- they put out the fire from T.G. Copperfield's solo album just released. Currently available to purchase. Uh, the album is called Magnolia. Check it out. It's really good. We'll have another T.G. Copperfield song from his band album coming up later in the show. 
But first, joining me all the way down in Adelaide, Australia, I need to introduce her. She needs to be heard. She is uh, threatening me with drop bears every single day if I don't introduce her sooner onto the show. We got uh, 42 sitting down in Adelaide, uh, and uh, she's got news about uh, not licking the coins down there. (laughs) Yes. Hello, everyone. Uh, Yes, there was a story that got posted on Facebook earlier this week. There were some uh, sheep in Western Australia, I believe it was, that were dying from anthrax that was just in the soil because we've had such terrible drought conditions. Uh, the the soil is is being churned up by by the uh, stock's feet. Yeah. And, uh, anthrax is a soil borne bacteria. Yeah. So that, yeah. It comes from the, um, the yeah the the uh, the farm fields in the uh, pasture areas. Yeah. yeah so you know the people who are out there digging for gold and. Stuff like that. Don't don't put that stuff in your mouth. Don't 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 be a typical coin licker. Australia coin lickers are off limits. <laughs> well, that's right. Oh, I've I've done it myself. And to be fair, I don't think that it would probably apply to like your suburban hunting areas. It, it it's probably restricted to more outback Australia. Yeah, but I'm you know crocodile it's Dundee been a long country. Time. It's it's been a long time since I studied microbiology, so it could very well be in 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 your in your backyard. But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be. I mean, I'm sure they move manure out to fertilize areas, so it could be. It could be something as simple as uh, bringing all that out there and stri- spraying it across the fields to fertilize the grass, and next thing you know, uh, you got a metal detector dropping dead from licking a coin. Yeah, look, I can tell you now if. There was a fresh pile of manure being spread out in the field. I don't think I'd be going with it anyway. <laughs> ah, that's just you better not be. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> I have been doing it. I have been known to be out on these fresh fields, uh, metal detecting while the field next to me was being sprayed with, uh, I think it was uh, pig manure. Um, they oh, they gross. usually spray it and then Any turn it up. Manure. And uh, they were doing, yeah, it was a rather stinky day. And uh, uh, yeah, um, I came home and I had to shower. Um, in fact, I had to get uh, naked before I came in. The house would not let, the wife would not let me in the house. <laughs> and, Smart wife. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. You're lucky. If it was me, I would have hosed you down first. Yeah, well, yeah, we, we were living in an apartment building at that time, uh, which means that I had to undress outside the apartment building, which was not something fun. What what time of the year was it? Uh, that would have been uh, spring. It was, I think it was about three years ago. Yeah, it was about oh, three years that. ago. Oh, we see that. Well, in Australia, people walking around in their undies. It's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, that's normal down under. Yeah, it's normal. I've, I've seen, I've seen. As, as soon as winter's over, that's it. We're, we're down to our jocks and socks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen pictures from Bondi Beach. I know exactly what it's like down there. <laughs> but anyway, we've got a really great show for you guys today. We got a great story coming up. Uh, 42 is here with me. As always, I couldn't be happier having her aboard. And uh, uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be doing the shout-outs here in a little bit. And uh, first of all, uh, yeah. That's the shout-outs. So first of all, it's coming up the shout-outs. So let's get this done and over with. It, 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 it's the GDA shout-outs. 
All right, who we got lined up this week? I know there's a special one on there. Yeah, there is. So uh, my first pick for shout-out is Wilbur Miner, um, and that's for being the Find of the Week winner, uh, the 1920s to 1930s Greyhound bus. That was a standout for oh, me. So yeah. I really, really got a kick out of seeing that one. I thought yeah. some some little kid is probably – cried a few tears over that and that that's not why I liked it but <laughs> I I liked it because it, it's it's quite iconic that greyhound bus you know everybody's been on a greyhound bus yeah exactly I would say or at least uh, most of most people have traveled somewhere on a greyhound bus yeah. so everybody can can have a, like a connection to that and Visualize that thing it was easy. Huge. Yeah, that was, that thing was huge. Yeah, I saw it on top of the coil. It was, was unbelievable. An coil. I reckon that was the eleven-inch coil. Yeah, I so think that so. Thing was, yeah, I I thought that thing was huge. It was pity that the wheels was were gone. But that's um, that's actually like, normal like when it comes to a lot of those. Yeah, yeah. I find a lot of cars and stuff that have the wheels missing, but I also find quite a few that have still got them. So it would have been such a a treat to have the wheels on there, but it's still a fantastic farm without it. You're talking um, about almost a hundred years of summers just pounding the ground where that thing was sitting. Exactly, so, yeah. Yeah, that that the yeah. the rubber or the plastic or the uh, what if there was something else before plastic. I can't even remember what it was. Would have just been eaten away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so congratulations on that one, Wilbur. The next one I've got for shoutouts is Lael Bickle, uh, who had a very close runner-up for that find of the week for the uh, 1930s man oil die-cast bus Zeppelin. That was a, oh, an unusual yeah, find. I, yeah, I, 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 said, I actually had to download the image and actually rotate it because I couldn't make out what it was, and then I had to do a little bit of research. That thing was unbelievable. Yeah. It is a beautiful yeah, that, find. that was really cool too. Yeah. Um, I just like it because it's just one of those off-the-wall designs, kind of like one of those um, – you know, like the people who made the the Batmobile from 1966, one of those kind of iconic looks. Uh, but I just don't understand where that that style came from, the Zeppelin-looking bus. I don't even know if it was an actual bus. I don't – yeah, it might not have been. It might have been Made just... in production that traveled people, <laughs> you know, transported people across the country. Yeah, I mean, that's probably exactly what it was. But it was one of those things that, you know, it just seems so weird – um, the style of it was, um, you know, the shape was just absolutely unique. Yeah, you see a lot of that in like the matchbox cars and stuff today at the shops. You know, they got the great big. I don't. I'm not really a car person, so I don't know what they're called. But you know, the extra bits and pieces that they put on the engine and know, air intakes and yeah. flames and you know all of these accessories that really pimp up the the car yeah so i don't i don't know whether that zeppelin bus was like an early version of of that or whether it was that an actual real design no it was I, very cool i i really enjoyed seeing that one no i, I don't enjoyed know seeing all of the cars yeah i do too actually. i do too i mean you know me i really want to you know i got a really good um uh, toy collection that I'm always trying to update and I find I found somebody I saw somebody that actually uh, picked up a um, 
an actual 1960s Matchbox uh, Batmobile before the the TV show happened. So it was one based on the actual comic books. And I begged and pleaded for the guy to send it to me, but I couldn't get it. but yeah, uh, these things are from the nineteen thirties. Was 1930s. it dug up or was it? It was. It was metal. It was a metal detecting find about four years ago. I think it was three or four years ago. Beautiful, beautiful thing. If I find it, I'll share it on the website. You can find it yeah. on the. Uh, you'll find it on the story notes there. Uh, just like all these today, you'll find on the story notes. But it turns out uh, the Zeppelin buses um, were from a company called Man Oil. Uh, from the 1930s. Uh, so that's a little bit of information on when that uh, the car was made. Um, they're kind of rare. They're scarce. They're listed as scarce vintage toys. Oh, okay. Cool. That's cool. Yeah, that was a great find. Um, and my last shout-out for this episode is to my brother from another mother. He <laughs> celebrated a birthday this week. So happy birthday, John Brockelman. Yeah, well, the sad thing is we both missed it. I know. <laughs> yeah, I feel a bit bad about that. Yeah, I do too, especially since I was sitting there talking with him for a couple hours yesterday. And <laughs> I didn't even know Sorry, that early, earlier in the week it was his birthday. So, uh, John, uh, I would sing for you, but it's probably a better present that I don't sing happy birthday to you. <laughs> I won't be singing with him. Oh, sorry. I won't be singing for him. But I have promised him that when we uh, – go out next time that I'll let him find the gold coin. There you go. There you go. So that's my present. (laughs) All right. So John, happy birthday from the entire GDA crew. Uh, We're going to give you uh, a really big shout out this episode. You definitely deserve it. Uh, You are the uh, part of the Deus duo uh, (laughs) uh, and (laughs) totally worth it. Sorry that we missed it, brother. Yeah, yeah, I'll make it up. All right. And uh, so uh, I want to give a big shout out to my father. I know he's listening in. He started listening ever since we got the uh, the website up last week. He's actually tuning in every Monday and listening to the show. So I want to give a big, huge shout out and thank you and love you to my father. Um, he's living in uh, Washington State. He's currently sitting at his house at uh, 80 years old, almost 80 years old, uh, and it's uh, seven inches of snow outside right now, and it just started snowing again uh, about an hour ago, and they're expecting another four to five inches of snow. So, uh, yeah, they're almost going to have a foot of snow by the end of the day at their time. So, Dad, hopefully you're not busting your back too much. Uh, stay inside, hire one of those young bucks up and down the street to come shovel your street, uh, driveway. Uh, don't try and do it yourself. <laughs> I love you, dad, but, uh, I know you're an honorary guy coming out of Texas. Uh, sometimes you just got to saddle up and ride on and let the young guys lead the herd. All right. Uh, now find of the week. We did just kind of hit on this a little bit. Uh, the find of the week. Well, let's just do this real quick. Yeah. Now, he was in the shout-outs as well. Uh, this bus that uh, you were talking about is absolutely unbelievable. It is massive. Now, um, everybody knows a Matchbox car. Uh, they can f- kind of picture the size of this thing, but this thing was at least two to three size 
two to three cars long as far as matchbox cars. Um, like you were saying, at it was least. at least it was sitting on an 11 inch coil and it was close to half the size of that coil, at least the length of the I reckon coil. it's actually over half the size. It's un- the thing is unbelievable yeah. how this thing got lost to begin with. Uh, I don't understand. It's like it's one half Ooh, size. It might have been broken and then tossed aside. You never know. Yeah, it could have been. I mean, looking at it from the photographs, it actually looked really good in good shape. I was really surprised how it came out of the ground. Uh, like like we were talking, typical no wheels, but uh, it came out of the ground. It looked like the paint was still on there, kind of that cream colored paint. Was it, am I mistaken? Was it a cream color? Uh, I think it's sort of a, a bluey greeny. Color. I think yeah. the the cream is a bit bit of the dirt, and then a little bit it, of that. It's silver. a little bit difficult to tell. Yeah, um, it could have been just silver as well because Greyhound buses are usually silver with the Greyhound logos on the side. So it could have just been the way the 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 item was photographed that it kind of yeah. misleads the eye a little bit. Um, but yeah, really, really great find. I love seeing those old toys. Um, I don't know. Have you found any kind of toys uh, while you've been hunting? Me? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I find I find toy cars quite often. Um, the the my favourites are actually posted on that on that particular post there. Um, and I found them on the same day too. One was a uh, let me just pull it up because I forget the names. It's mm. a Lone Star Tough Tots Dodge Dart. Hmm. It's made in England. I don't have any information about when they were, but they're about um, a half to three quarters of the size of a normal matchbox car. And the other one was a Fun Ho number 43 E-type Jag, which was made in New Zealand. So I've never found a car that's been made in New Zealand before. So that one was pretty Yeah, that's pretty, pretty special. That's pretty me. crazy. And it's, it's, it's really, they, they, they fit really nicely in the palm of your hand. They're, they're a little bit smaller than a matchbox car. Mm. But the, the Dodge Dart actually still has the driver and the windshield. Oh, really? It's a convertible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a convertible. Uh, and it still has the driver and the, the windshield. And I'm pretty sure all of the wheels are still on those cars as well. And they've still got quite a bit of paint. So the Dodge is a bit, um, well, they're both a bit dirty, really. I tend not to clean my finds like this, especially if there's paint involved because that cleaning process just yeah, yeah, strips really, away yeah. any of the paint. So I tend not to, I you know, I might just give it a, a bit of a rinse over or a brush over with a yeah. toothbrush. Yeah, that's about all I do just too. leave them as they are. Yeah, that's about all I do, too. It's just, you know, I mean, it can handle the water. Obviously, it's been in the ground getting soaked all the time. But, you know, getting that kind of a brush out and just rubbing it, it might actually destroy a lot of the Pull patina. That paint off. Or put, yeah. if you put it in an ultrasonic, that would probably rip the paint off as <clears throat> oh, well. Oh, I would never even think about doing that. Yeah. No. Nope. I've done that with with some things. Like the later, the later cars, I would probably do that with, you know, just to give it a give it to a kid or, or something like that just mm-hmm. to clean it up, I would I would do that because those those later cars would probably be able to handle it. But with yeah. these ones where you can see the paint is, you can already tell it's starting to flame. It's really ready to delaminate from that surface. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things. I did find a recent Matchbox cars on one of mine. That is the, I've only found two toys so far. Uh, there was that one. Then I what? found a 1940s-ish uh, cap gun that was broken, but I could tell you it haven't was... found one of those fidget spinners yet. No, no fidget spinners. Yeah, I know they're everywhere, right? <laughs> I found them. 
I really? found them the, you know, the summer after they came out. I think they came out over a summer here. Yeah, that's and that's. I found, I found them on the beach. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> they came in style, and then they just started flying off the hands the next year. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one. I had a couple of them. I have one of those little fidget cubes where you can sit around and flip a switch in your hand the the whole time. I actually highly recommend those. Um, those help pass time, but those fidget spinners I could never understand. Maybe I'm just stupid. I reckon I, reckon I stole one from someone because it was pink. <laughs> that's my favorite color. The more fluorescent the pink, the better. The, the, the sad thing is that would have been something different if it was the 1980s that you were talking about. You were six years old. <laughs> but you're admitting at a, as a much older woman that you stole a pink one from obviously a kid somewhere. No, I didn't steal it from a child. <laughs> stole it from an adult <laughs> who was very lucky I didn't steal the hot pink Batman themed one. Wait, there was a, I got oh, that, that would have been Batgirl. Yeah. You can steal this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I, I tell you now, if I find that pink Batman one, Batman one around the house, I will probably steal it. It's, you know, it's been a year now. Yeah, I would probably do it too. If it's still around the house, that Batman one would be on my Batman wall. <laughs> I'm just trying to think what other sort of toys that I found. I found, I found cap guns. Yeah, I, that's yeah, cap that's. Guns? Have you found any cap guns? Yeah, that's the only other one that I got is about a 1940s, 1950s, maybe early 60s cap gun one. You know, those TV series were really popular. I just don't know. It was probably an American kid that had it at uh, the swimming area here in town because there was an American right. base next to it where we found it at one point. So, no, that's all. I, I found a lot of parts of cap guns, part yeah. like the the barrel or the. The the main the, the main that holds body the bullets yeah yeah the barrel kind of um, I found I found three chamber. that are what I call mostly intact really yeah, yeah mine I find was, the pin a bit or the trigger mine was just the the the, the chamber area of the gun the handle was broke the off chamber that's what yeah. I'm thinking of yeah the hand the handle was broke off the barrel was broke off but I it still had the name on it and I can't remember it's outside I would look it up. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was a nineteen forties, uh, nineteen up to nineteen sixties, so one of those okay. things like Roy Rogers kind of thing. Yeah, I found quite a few. Uh, I, I class them as toy cars, but you know, there's a motorcycle, mm -hmm. there's a, an airplane, there's other mode. Like I found a helicopter once. Yeah, I'd still classify it as a toy all car. In a yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're they're in that sort of sort of genre, but they're generally the sorts of toys that I find would be the the cars. And I've found three mostly intact cap guns. Really, that's one that's... was actually yeah one one was a one that you know, was a what do you call it a keychain one. You can see where there's like a little keychain attachment. It's only an inch. Oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe actually. two inches long, if that. It's really really small. Uh, mate of mine found a spud gun once. I was very jealous of that because I had a spud gun as a kid. Yeah. And as soon as I saw it, I've just gone, that's a spud gun. Yeah. Was it still was operational? Very, very excited for him. Could you pull no, the – No, it was missing – it was – it was. you could tell it was a gun, but it was missing the front part that went into the spud. Oh, okay. With the, the trigger. And yeah, the, spring the barrel. Oh, right. it was one of yeah. those ones where you pulled the trigger and it shot? It wasn't, yeah, that's It right. wasn't the one where you squeeze I it together really fast? I had one of those fast? as a kid. 
I loved it. I thought it was great. I mean, when I was growing not. up, I'm, you could my order them. My mom didn't them. want me to have one, but no. my dad's like, here you go. They're, they're pretty dangerous. I mean, could you imagine yeah, a kid nowadays having one of those? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I remember when we were growing up, you know, you were flipping through the comic books on the last page or just inside the front page. There are always, the, always those uh, advertisements where you could get all kinds of stupid things like x-ray glasses. X-ray vision glasses. Yeah, or smoke from your fingers. <laughs> and spud guns were always one of them on there. And I just always wanted one. And finally, I got one. And I think it was one of those ones where you could actually, you pull it apart, you stick it in the potato, pull it back out, and you squeeze it together really fast. And I think after yeah. the second time, it broke. Um, oh, no. Yeah. So my mom refused to ever let me order something from a comic book again. Uh, I can't remember where mine came from. I reckon it was probably like a garage sale or a secondhand shop because it was, it was, it was a, it was a secondhand item. The paint wasn't new. The paint, you know, had chips on it. Oh yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's actually really cool. Man, I love I talking. If I looked hard enough, it would probably be still around somewhere. Maybe for my parents, for those of you who know Forty Two and me, we're both toy freaks as well, and so we're kind of mixing two worlds together. Right here. I'm not as much as a toy freak as what Lance is. <laughs> but my yeah. toys tend to be small plastic buildable things. Yeah, well, I mean, I got a couple of those around here too. I got a Tie Fighter I still got to put together, <laughs> but I got um, I got my boxes of all my Lego stuff sitting up in the attic. I don't even have space to put them up anymore. I've got about. Oh, you should just send them to me then. I got about six hundred dollars worth of Star Wars Lego, and I can't even put it up. But anyway. Mm. Yeah. No, you just have to send it to me. That's fine. I'll do it. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we're going to cut off to a commercial. Uh, once that gets done, we're going to be doing a world premiere song. This song is called um, Right Time, Wrong Place by T.G. Copperfield, The Band, uh, from their brand new album, Three Days Whiskey. Now, here's a, here's a little bit of trivia. Both the T.G. Copperfield solo album and the T.G. Copperfield band album both got released at the same time on Friday, the 9th of February, uh, the 8th of February, excuse me. Wait, what day are we? Don't ask me. I'm on okay. a different time. Yeah, I'm right. It to was me, Friday the, the 8th. <laughs> it was Friday the 8th of February. Uh, they both got dropped at the same time. So both a solo and a band album got dropped. So we're going to be listening to the full song, Right Time, Wrong Place, by the band T.G. Copperfield in a world premiere uh, release of this song. This has never been heard anywhere in the world. And we'll be back in a few minutes right after this. Rock metal detecting. Seven, 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 Kimmy Rock Metal Detecting. Hey guys, Seven Kimmy here with Girls Rock Metal Detecting. I just wanted to pop in and check in and see how your dig weekend's been going. Um, I don't know if you realize, but I've been having a pretty fortunate one. Um, I've dug two Walking Liberty half dollars in the last couple weekends, and I also pulled out a Mercury dime. Um, so I've been pretty lucky. 
Uh, if you want to check that out, get over to Girls Rock Metal Detecting on Facebook. Also check out my YouTube. Um, but I wanted to take this opportunity for those of you that are out metal detecting and didn't have much luck this weekend. Um, I want you to kind of take a moment and remember that it's not always about the fines. Where I met a delightful gentleman by the name of Charles. I stood on the grand front porch of his beautiful New Orleans-style home as Charles slowly opened a large, heavy door in response to my knocking. With a smile on his face, he quickly approved my request to detect his property and confessed to being a metal detectorist himself, as well as a Civil War reenactor. Charles was a friendly man with a very kind face, and all the while detecting his property, he would pop out to talk. He brought his finds and was obviously proud of his Civil War buckle, cannonball frag, buttons, bullets, and other campsite goodies, thrilled to share them with someone who truly appreciated them. He later brought out his tablet computer to share aerial photographs he had taken of a nearby Civil War reenactment. We had a lovely time talking as I puttered around his property, digging up one roofing nail after another. He placed them in a little jar, why he wanted them I don't know, other than as a memento of some sort. But I couldn't help but think he was as sentimental about detecting as I am. And when he spoke of his dearly departed wife, I had an overwhelming feeling our visit had somehow brightened his day. When it came time to leave, Charles insisted I take a little button from his fine stash that I had shown interest in, adding it to the only good bits I'd recovered from his yard, a little buckle, and a 1930s wheat penny. As it turns out, the best find of the day were the moments spent with this new friend. Sometimes you have to look up from the ground and appreciate what's going on around you. Metal detecting can offer so much more than just finds. Don't forget to stop and appreciate the moments. Take care everybody and rock metal detecting. Well, everybody knows that uh, Rudus Metal Detector sponsors us, but I want to go ahead and take this time when I'm supposed to be doing a commercial for them, which I still am. Make sure you head on over to rudus.com.pl and check out the website of the Alter 71, the machine that I'm currently using or going to be actually using a lot more this coming summer. Uh, check it out. It's a really great machine. It's one of those uh, professional quality machines at a rate that everybody can afford, actually. It is by far one of the most personalizable machines that there are. So check it out at rudus.com.pl. And what I really want to do is I want to give a huge, huge shout out to uh, Eric over at rudus.com and uh, also to Viola. Uh, these two people, Eric and Viola, make it their personal commitment to every single uh, customer of Rudus.com to become as personal as possible with each and every one of them. They are a great, great company. Make sure you check them out. But thank you to both Viola and to Eric. You guys have a great company. You guys really care about the people that you're serving and you care about the machines that you create. Thank you so much for what you do. All right, that's it for me. Let's get back to the show. Exclusive hot new mix.
All right, so that was uh, T.G. Copperfield, the band, from their new album, Three Days Whiskey. Just got dropped on the 8th of February, just a couple days ago. And uh, this is a never-heard-before song. I love this band. I saw them, like I was telling you earlier, in Bamberg for the first time. And he and I are now constantly talking with each other. Great guy. I highly recommend all four of his albums, including his solo album, Making Five Albums. Definitely check these guys out. Later on, 
uh, in the month, we're going to be having a giveaway for two of his first albums, the, the self-titled TG Copperfield album. I have two brand new copies of this album to give away to two lucky listeners somewhere in the world. So uh, check back in. Uh, later this month, you will find it on the website, gdapod.com, and uh, you'll find information on how you can win that. So make sure you check that out. But for now, we're going to be going into a little bit of the GDA Find Stories. You ready for this one? Now, here's a question for you. What is Battlefield Archaeology? Do you know what that is? No, not exactly, but I could hazard a guess. Okay, go ahead. People go out looking on old battlefields for relics of the battle. Uh, see, that's that's where there's a problem. Uh, up till 1983, battlefield archaeology didn't even exist. Now, there are things that are called military archaeology, and that's what you're talking about is the study of objects found on battlefields. Uh, but up till 1983, nobody had ever gone to a battlefield and tried to find... Uh, the actual way that a battle played out based on the evidence on the ground or in the ground. So, yeah, we have, uh, in 1983, uh, Battlefield Archaeology was created by Dr. Douglas D. Scott, and it began like this. So Scott went out to try to create field methodology to better systematically investigate battlefields. Basically, you go out to the land, you look at the way it's set up, you start checking finds that are in the ground itself to try and figure out how a battlefield or a battle actually moved. Because a battle, just like people and the people that do it, is kind of a living thing. You know, you have the historical records, but when you're thinking of about a battle, it moves uh, based on the way that it is um, reacted to by the people on the ground. So if you l- investigate a battlefield, you can see exactly how accurate the historic records of, um, you know, how the historical records of that battle are. So nobody prior to 1983 could accurately interpret what a battlefield was. So in 1983, he created the framework for future archaeologists to more accurately interpret the layout of a battlefield while standing on the site. This allowed a better understanding of how a battle developed and actually gives the archaeologists sometimes the truth in what are glaring inaccuracies in history books. Now, you ask yourself, why, why was this important? Well, it all comes down to one thing. And how did Dr. Scott first use this? Well, that's a good question, 42. Um, <laughs> now, yes. I'm, now I'm giving how you the... This, how did Dr. Scott use this? <laughs> all right. So it, it came down to uh, a battle that the Native Americans refer to as the battle at Greasy Grass River. Uh, which uh, to Western civilization is known by a much different name. We call the battle that took place on the morning of the 25th of June, 1876, the Battle of Little Bighorn, and it's also nicknamed Custer's Last Stand. 
Now, newspapers at the time reported headlines such as Terrible Battle with Indians, General Custer, 15 officers, and every man of five companies slain. <laughs> it's, it was a big thing back in the time. That was written by the Charlotte Democrat from Charlotte, North Carolina on the 10th of July, 1876. So not, not entirely too long. you got to think that I'm pretty sure there was no uh, Twitter back at the time so they could say, dude, this guy just got totally whacked out here on Little Bighorn. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that was not going on at the time. Uh, so it said, you know, everybody said it was the historic and heroic, that's the word I'm looking for, heroic last stand of General Custer with all his men as they gathered on top of this hill and bravely fought off this massive horde of Native Americans um, who then massacred and slaughtered them and desecrated their bodies and all kinds of things. So those are the stories that were going around at the time. It became almost a romantic tale of the American West, kind of like... Um, Wyatt Earp at the OK Corral or Billy the Kid or, um, you know, any of those other Wild West people. General Custer's Last Stand was one of those things that every household knew at the time in the late 18, uh, 1800s. It's also said that we will never know the real story as there were no survivors, but we know that's complete bull as thousands of people survived. Uh, most of them were Native Americans, and there were also a couple soldiers who survived after they fled the battle. Uh, there were also other soldiers uh, that were there as well. Uh, so it became a huge question of, is there truth in the legends and myths of the last stand, or are the stories of the Native Americans the way it actually happened? Because the story of the Native Americans shows a completely different picture. The Native Americans say there was nothing but panic and confusion in the soldiers' ranks, and they've passed the stories from generation to generation, talking about how there was no last stand, rather that the soldiers were scared and panicking and were easily picked off by the Native Americans. And this is what Dr. Scott wanted to investigate, the truth behind the Battle of Little Bighorn. This is where he wanted to first use his idea, his methodology of battlefield archaeology. So in 1983, uh, they went out to Little Bighorn in Montana. He headed out to the battlefield where they know around where the battle took place, because there are headstones of every single one of the cavalry men from the 7th Cavalry. There are headstones located on the ground where each soldier died. This is the only battlefield in the world where the soldiers are buried and marked at the exact location where they actually fell. Oh, wow. So you can see exactly how the battlefield was laid out by looking at how the the headstones are laid out on the field. Uh, so this is why he wanted to use his new methodology on this spot. They could see where the bodies lay. Now it became a question of piecing the puzzle together based on the evidence that they would find. The headstones mark where each body was buried, like I was saying. Uh, La-di-da-di-da. I'm obviously reading. <laughs> so in one, sp in one spot, uh, headstones... Uh, 
we're kind of in a line. So if you look at it from one angle, it looks like probably a good 50 yard or 50 meter line of headstones, which makes sense because the cavalry, uh, one of the first things they would do is would, would create a skirmish line. So it would be a long line of soldiers, approximately five meters apart, kneeled down and providing fire in the direction of the enemy. Uh, and that's what it looks like on the ground. And that's what they thought for 108 years was going on on the ground. So they wanted to first find out exactly why this line of headstones was going off in this direction. Uh so they went out there armed with metal detectors, but more they wanted to find what actually happened there and put uh, to rest the rumors and the myths and the stories, and then to accurately give a voice to the people and the events that happened on the day of 1876. So this is what we know happened that day so far. All right. So in the mid 1800s, the the Lakota Sioux were given the land in the Black Hills of Montana, which included the area of Little Bighorn, which is a river that goes through Montana. However, when gold was discovered in the Black Hills in the 1870s, the U.S. government demanded that the Sioux move out, go back to their reservation, so that the white miners who were flocking to the area to mine for the gold could do so without the Native American presence. Yeah, without the Native American presence. Now, white America at the time, and I have to put it this way, white America, because you got to remember, this is shortly after the death of President Lincoln, and we're at the end of the Civil War here. And uh, General George A. Custer was a massive hero. He fought in um, the Battle of Gettysburg. He fought in the Battle of Cemetery Ridge. He was a well-known and well-liked general. Uh, but white America at the time, they had dime novels and newspaper stories depicting the bloodthirsty savages which were living on the Great Plains in you know, the central United States. Uh, it is true that just before the events that I'm about to talk about, two miners were found dead in an apparent Native American attack, but there were no other provocations for this. They just did not want to leave the land that the U.S. government gave them, and they were constantly moving around with this huge village that was mobile. Uh, so they just simply saw the people as an uneducated and feral people, a menace to the country. Uh, stories abounded about how soldiers and outposts would come under attack. Then there were stories about uh, soldiers retaliating by wiping out complete villages of na uh, natives, men, women, children, which gathered praise by the public in the United States at the time. But unbeknownst to the people, and this is, this is one of the worst parts of the whole thing, um, unbeknownst to the people, only one of those stories were true. Uh, the systematic, um, no, just a second. <laughs> the systematic genocide of the Native American villages throughout the plains by cavalry and U.S. soldiers. So here we have a problem in the Black Mountains of Montana. The Sioux, along with the Northern Cheyenne Indians, were sitting on the land the government had given them, but the government decided that they wanted the land to return to them, and that the natives needed to return to the reservations so that the mining could commence. But 
At the time, Chief Sitting Bull refused to give up the area and was traveling with a massive mobile village of around 1,200 huts. Uh, they estimated uh, 1,200 at the time. And uh, kind of go into that a little bit. But uh, in this, they estimated that there were approximately 1,500 Native American warriors located in this mobile village. General George Custer had been following the tracks of this village for some time with the 7th Cavalry Regiment, the supposed best of the best uh, of the U.S. soldiers at the time. These were the the men between 18 and 23 years old. They were well-fed, well-cared for. They were the smartest, the best, the bravest. Um, However, because of the roughness of the terrain, they couldn't bring with them Gatling guns or artillery as they were uh, following this large um, mobile village uh, that was led by Chief Sitting Bull. Clusters of Indian scouts then spotted an encampment to the west of the Little Bighorn River. So Custer, with his soldiers, they went up on top of a hill, and when he saw this village, he was completely awestruck by the size. But he decided that instead of waiting for backup, as the uh, his his own Indian scouts were telling him to do. They were telling him it's way too big. We got to wait for the backup to show up, which was on the way. Uh, Custer decided that he was going to go ahead and uh, attack. So what he ended up doing, he had uh, one of his majors, uh, Major uh, Reno, cut an attack from the south side. And he would then move around to the west side and attack from that area there. Uh, he headed out into the hills near Little Bighorn and started scanning. Uh, this is Dr. Scott again. Dr. Scott went out into the hills near Little Bighorn and started scanning the area with metal detectors. He had collected volunteers to help find an answer to the events of the day with the uh, National Parks Association as well. They found... Uh, in the two-year investigation, over 5,000 artifacts and pinned the location of wow. every single one of them. Uh, it didn't matter what it was. They found bullets, bullet casings, bones, spurs, uh, pieces of horse tack, uh, bones of horses. If they found it, they put a pin flag on every single location uh, during the course of two years. Uh, now... A good thing to remember is that the American Cavalry at the time, they only carried 45 caliber Springfield breech loader rifle. So a breech loader rifle is a rifle that you lift up the top of the rifle to put a new bullet in, and then you close it, pull the hammer back, and fire. Um, everybody sees or thinks about those old Western movies where they have the hammer um kind of rifles where you cock the hammer, fire, cock it again, fire, cock it again, fire. Uh, everybody knows those. But this was something new to the cavalry because they had uh, limited space. So what this let them do is they carried a belt on them where they had bullets actually on the belt around their waist. And uh, so they'd fire around, they'd lift up the lever, their, the casing would eject out, they'd put the new bullet in, close it, and be able to fire. So I don't know why they decided to use these, but it was a Springfield, so I guess they had the, the uh, contract for the military at the time. Uh, so it was pretty easy to figure out exactly uh, 
what was going on. And I'll get to that in a second. But on the other hand, the Native Americans had multiple different types. Any kind of weapon they could trade for at trading posts, anything they could you know, get off the bodies of dead soldiers or uh, from previous attacks, anything that they could collect. They had a lot of different kinds of weapons. So locating the position of where the cavalry troops were and the Native Americans became pretty clear when they started locating impacted bullets in the ground. And that only means that, you know, if you find a large collection of 45 bullets in the ground, that means that a soldier was firing right in that area. Because mm. you, you, can, you can imagine. But if you find another area where there's multiple different types of bullets in the ground, that means that the Native Americans were shooting at that area and the bullets were landing in the ground right at that spot. So they were able to figure out, okay, this is where uh, one of the cavalry soldiers was. This is where one of the Native Americans were. Cavalry, cavalry position had high numbers of multiple types of projectiles on the grounds. And the numbers started making the archaeologists go, uh, exactly what's going on here? So they decided at that time to begin a forensic type investigation into the number of weapons used at the scene and in Little Bighorn. What they ended up doing is they compared ejected shell casings found on the ground so that they could estimate how many specific types of guns were used by the number of different firing pin marks found on the same type of casing. So if you got uh, the cavalry guys all shooting the same type of round, and you know, like forensic files, you see the firing pin makes a specific kind of indentation on the bullet casing, and it's that weapon will make the exact same type of indentation every single time it fires a gun because it might have a, a bullet. It might have a slight nick in the firing pin. You know what I'm saying? So that nick yep. you can see every single time it fires. And so they started locating uh, bullet casings on the ground and started collecting every single one of them and marking every single location where it was found. And like I said, by the time they had over 5,000 pin flags in the ground. And we're not talking about just relics. We're talking about shell casings as well. It was found that there were 45 different types of weapons being used by the Native American warriors. And based, wow. and based on that, 800 of them were armed with rifles and pistols which is much more than they previously thought. In fact, this provided the archaeologists the first clue to the truth of what happened that day. The truth is, General Custer was outgunned four to one. Wow. <laughs> Could you imagine that? For every single cavalry soldier rifle, there were four Native Americans, and they had... Um, the faster operating weapons. And I'll get to that here in a little bit. Dr. Scott then investigated thousands of cartridges of the cavalry to view the movements of the soldiers in the battle, or at least the areas where the weapons were used in the battle. So they located and were able to say, okay, this bullet casing went to gun A. This bullet casing went to gun C. Oh, look, this bullet casing goes back to gun A. They marked 
however many guns there were used by the cavalry soldiers by only the impacts of the firing pins on the casings. And they could see on a map where that gun moved across the battlefield. That, that kind of concentration into the detail is just unbelievable to me. I love this stuff. Um, mm. He investigated thousands of cartridges used by the cavalry to view the movements. So because of this, Dr. Scott created... Uh, and his creation of the battlefield archaeology and armed with the invaluable aid of metal detectors finally told the story of the 7th Cavalry on the morning of the 25th of June. It was discovered that, as they were saying, a skirmish line had been created by the cavalry. Yet, when the overwhelming numbers of the warriors began attacking, the right wing of the cavalry line started to disintegrate. They started moving back into the area of where General Custer was on the hill, and in route, they started clustering together in large groups. That's when they were easily slaughtered. When this began to happen, the, sol the time of the soldiers had officially uh, been numbered, basically. Uh, the use of metal detecting and archaeologists hand-in-hand -hand on the battlefield archaeology on modern, on modern battlefields showed the truth of what had happened. Custer ignored the news from his Indian scouts who had said that his soldiers had already been spotted and told Major Reno to attack from the south of the village. Reno's attack was held off by the warriors in the village and the women and children began to flee. Seeing this, General Custer then decided to chase them down. The natives then in turn cut off General Custer and that's when the battle between the two was imminent. The cavalry then picked up a skirmish line, normal practice for them at the time, each man five meters apart, and shortly after is when the right wing began to fail by the Native Americans, who they had a style of fighting that was individual. They didn't yet believe in the normal military style, you know, everybody stand in the line and fire at the enemy. They just attack as they want willy-nilly, because they're trained hunters is exactly what they are. But because of this breach, uh, because the breech-loading Springfield white rifle was much slower than the lever-action rifles that the natives had, they were easily overcome in close quarters. And then, with pistol, axe, knife, and mallet, the cavalrymen were just easily slaughtered. What they ended up doing is they'd take those mallets and uh, hit the cavalry soldiers in the arms to knock the guns out of their hands or break their arms so that they could no longer use them. It was a matter of chaos, almost from the onset of contact with the Native Americans for the cavalry soldiers. It was found that the soldiers were firing in all directions, but not covering a single direction of fire, which allowed the natives easy avenues of approach right up to the soldiers. Eventually, they were surrounded. After Custer was killed, the remaining men dropped their weapons and attempted to run for the river, where they were easily chased down and killed by the natives. What is known as Last Stand Hill, which is uh, the area, you'll see photos of it on the website. Head over to gdapod.com. You'll see photos of Last Stand Hill. It's the largest number of tombstones gathered in a small area and has been referred to as Last Stand Hill. 
what was actually found to not be the heroic stand of the soldiers of General Custer ended up just simply being uh, the fact that it was an area where they had uh, very few cavalry shell casings, but an extremely high number of Native American bullets. It turned out this last stand hill was a place where everybody ran back to because that's where the general was. They were, I guess, expecting some kind of uh, control and uh, confidence uh, from the general himself. But once he died, that's when everything just went down. All this together, wow. all this together means that the legends and the stories of the heroic last stand were completely fabricated. There was no last stand. From the beginning, General Custer's men were outnumbered, outgunned, and faced an opponent that was comfortable and proficient in hunting individual individually, be they prey, animal, or man. The storybooks will now accurately refre- uh, reflect the confusing minutes that the Battle of Little Bighorn took place in. And with the help of metal detectors on the battlefield, alongside with archaeologists, the truth of the final day of the men of the 7th Cavalry have been found. On that day in, eight, in 1983, battlefield archaeology was officially created and still used to this day to better understand the truth in battlefields around the world. It ended up Dr. Scott was given an award by the National Parks Association for his work in discovering the truth behind the battle of Little Bighorn. So that's it. Uh, metal detectors, it ended up being, uh, they went out there. I was looking at photos of this, and they went out there with approximately 24 to 25 whites metal detectors. You know that old one with the handle that curved up right around the top of the metal detector? The kind that Grandpa used to have in his shack. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that. I might have to look that you, one. Yeah, might need to look that up. The handle actually kind of curved from the back right over the large control box, and that you can see photos. Oh yeah. I can. Yeah, I'll yeah. share photos of them uh, metal yeah. detecting out That'd there. That'd be good. Yeah, it's really so good. So this was in the 80s, right? Yeah, it was 1983 when yeah. they actually uh, developed this uh, this new thing, and. Um, it's really unbelievable exactly what they were able to determine and um, how they were, you know, right on the spot. They were like, you know, maybe we can bring forensic archaeology into this. And they started, to me, the, the fact that they started looking at every single bullet case to find out which gun fired which. They could actually literally tell you where a Native American went around and was shooting his rifle from based on where the rounds, uh, the shell casings were located on the ground. It's Wow. They were able to find, uh, they tracked one soldier as he was, uh, obviously where it was set up on the skirmish line, they found, I think it was five casings on the ground. And then they found another bullet from him about 50 yards away. And then another bullet about 50 yards away from that as he was trying to run down to a cut uh, in the valley there. Uh, then they were also able to uh, identify a soldier from the bones which was kind of crazy because when the uh, the soldiers that came uh, about 36 hours after the battle had come, they were the ones that buried them and put the, the markers on the ground for the soldiers. When uh, 
when they came, they noted that one of the soldiers, I can't remember exactly, John something, um, they noted that he had been shot in the hip as well as a couple other places. Uh, they found the bullet, uh, the bones of a soldier who had suffered a gunshot to the pelvic bone, which then perforated his large intestines and uh, he would have died slowly. Uh, but they found that he had then been um, hit over the head with a mallet and stabbed a couple times as well, uh, also shot in the wrist. Uh, but they were able to accurately identify this as being the one person that they knew the true name of identified just by the wounds that he um, occurred during the Battle of Little Bighorn, which is 108 years after the battle, just an unprecedented uh, thing to happen. Yeah, wow. I mean, I've seen, I've seen, I'm seeing pictures of the of the headstones that you were talking about on that yeah. hill, and it's all all sort of fenced off. Were they detecting on the headstone side of the fence yeah, only? They, or were they, they had to. They had in, to in the other side as well. Um, what you're looking at, you can see that large collection that's fenced off. That is Last Stand Hill. Uh, that's yeah. actually where the last of the men fell. General Custer was right there as well. Um, but what you're missing is that um, usually from the direction where they take that photo, so that you'll see the big square uh, memorial sitting on top of the hill there. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm looking at a photo that's at that memorial looking down the hill. Okay, so if you're looking down the hill, as it goes down to the right, uh, you can kind of see a couple headstones heading off to the right-hand side, and there's a, like one or two that you can see off in the distance that seem to be by themselves. And it ended up being those who are the men, the ones that are by themselves, those are the guys that were trying to flee the battle. They were trying to run away. Um they had just been buried where their bodies had been. And you can see that there's a line that kind of cuts off to the front right as you're looking down the hill from the memorial. And that's that line that they originally thought was a line of skirmish. Uh, they thought that's the line that the, uh, the um, <sighs> cavalrymen had made to fight, mm -hmm. and that's where the men had fallen. But it ends up, uh, the line of skirmish was actually at the end of that line. And as the natives started coming in, that's the line that started falling apart. And as you start looking, uh, coming back from the far end up toward um, uh, Last Stand Hill, you'll see that there's usually one or two. And then every once in a while, you'll see like three collected together and then one, two, and then maybe four. And that's what was happening. So they're on the other side of the fenced area. Yeah, exactly. They're on the other side right. of the fence. Uh, the, there's, there's uh gravestones that cover a good quarter mile in any oh, direction. Wow. Yeah. It's a large area. And what had happened is that that's that line that you see right there that had broken and they were trying to run back toward uh, the general's location right there on Last Stand Hill. And they'd end up clumping together, and the Indians were able to uh, mow them down a lot easier since it was a much larger target with two, three, four men standing there together. Um, yeah. So, and that's what had happened. It it was just chaos on the battlefield. It ended up, uh, they started looking at the, the men, the bones that they were actually uh, finding on the ground. And they said that, 
The soldiers in the 7th Cavalry were the best of the best. They, between 18 and 23 years old, well-fed men. Uh, they were the strong men. Um, but the bones started telling a different story. Uh, they started finding out that a lot of the men were 16 years old. Um, oh, wow. You had uh, men who had arthritis at 20-something years old from riding the horses. A lot of the men had um, spinal injuries because of riding the horses. The impacting, the cushions between the vertebrae had been completely, almost completely worn away. And it was now bone smashing on bone as they were riding the horses. So these men, oh, and they also found out that almost all of them were malnourished. Uh, so all these all these rumors and things that are said about the Seventh Cavalry being the best of the best, absolutely well fed, and uh, between eighteen and twenty three, for the most part, that was completely wrong. These men, or is it, or is that actually relative? Like they were well fed for the time, perhaps. Well, that's what everybody's know. trying to say. But if these are supposed to be the men that are supposed to be the strongest, the best of the best, like the special forces for their time. Uh, yeah, they couldn't find it, and they were there were soldiers dead on the ground, two years younger than they were supposed to be, uh, and a lot of them were a lot older than what they were supposed to be. So there was almost nobody within that eighteen to twenty three year old uh, range, and they said it was amazing how many of them were suffering from arthritis, especially for their mm. age. So that would have made, you know, maybe holding a rifle or running hard because they couldn't run because it would hurt their backs as they were doing it. Yeah. It's just incredible, these things. And, they, and so the bones that they were finding, were they on the surface of the, no, of the ground? Um, because no, because the, the soldiers, about 36 to 48 hours later, they had come in and buried every single soldier where they lay. Um, and right. that's where the stories of the brutality that had been conducted to the, the cavalry soldiers started coming. Men were talking about uh, them being completely brutalized and actually completely massacred on the ground. But it ended up being, you know, uh, Native Americans might have come up. There was a soldier that was bleeding on the ground, so he hit the guy over the head with a mallet. Um, you know, put him out of his misery kind of thing. Or they yeah. would have seen another one and they didn't have a mallet, so they stabbed them. Um, Native Americans, they preferred that really close in kill. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly what they say it was about that, but they prefer that really close in kill uh, rather than to the long distance uh, rifle shots. And so if they're going to put somebody out of their misery, that's what they're going to do. They're going to come right in there and um, put them out of their misery one-to-one. -one. Uh, so what might be to the Native Americans, somebody getting put out of their misery might to the soldiers coming in a day later look like an absolute massacre. So, mm. and they ended up... One buried... question I also have about this, Lance, is... Mm -hmm. um, is I know this is 1983. I was quite young, so I don't know what the metal detecting community was doing then. But where is this? Is this a, a public 
place that you're not allowed a metal detect normally? You need special permission. Like, it's it's a national park. You know, if this, if this, if somebody wanted to do this today, no, I would, are, you're not going to find. I would half, one half yeah. the amount of those casings. <laughs> I would absolutely um, make sure that you check with the national uh, parks services in the United States before you even. Think about going out there because this is a national park. Uh, this is the Little Bighorn National Park. Do not try and go out there and metal detect on your own. Um, they, uh, on a couple of the documentaries I was seeing, watching, they had archaeologists out there with metal detectors, and they're still finding shell casings. And one, in one of the documentaries I saw, they actually found one of the forty-five caliber um, rounds from the uh, the soldiers actually on last stand hill. So that means that somebody was shaking so bad they couldn't even get that round into that gun. It ended up falling out of their hand into the ground. And who knows, that could have been the last thing that that person had done. And they found that during the filming of this documentary. It was a great thing, one of those things. And I would just leave, leave this area alone. Let the archaeologists do it. If you happen to be on the list of them to come out and help them investigate even further, do it. I mean, from 1983 to, to I think this documentary that I watched was filmed five years ago, they're still finding stuff. Uh, there is that much out there. I mean, you're talking about wow. uh, close to 300 um, cavalry men died that day. And I think they calculate around 400 of the Native Americans died that day. So there are 700 bodies out there. And they're still spread out over the battlefield. It's one of those crazy things. What about the horses? (laughs) Well, you know, I couldn't find much about the horses. Now, the Native Americans say that what they did is they took all the weaponry from uh, the battle. If it was still usable, if it wasn't, they took them and then buried them somewhere uh, further away. Um, Little Bighorn, I'll share a photo uh, of um, Sitting Bull, Chief Sitting Bull, uh, the guy who led this attack. Um, The photo that I'm going to share on the website is six years after the attack. So it's, I think, 1883 when the photo was actually taken. So you can see the determination in this guy. They, uh, these people, they ended up getting away. Uh, they survived. They went back to the reservation. But, you know, the damage had been done. The talking about the people had been done. Uh, the good news is, is we were fastly approaching the end of the Wild West. The turn of the century was about to come. And... Um, it's not that I'm saying that uh, white America was much better with the Native Americans. Um, even today, we're not good with them at all. Um, you could almost consider it kind of the American mirror of Australians and the Aborigines. Um, mm. It is not a good standing the way that we treat them, or especially at the time, just massacring them because they were on land that we wanted to take. And then... Um, you know, that they'd been sitting on for two, three, four thousand years. So it's just one of those things. It's, you know, that's why I keep saying things like white America at this time, because that's what it was. It was, you know, the belief back in the 1800s that we are better than everybody else. And um, 
What we say is absolute biblical. It has to happen. If we find gold in an area, everything needs to move away. We're taking that spot. If there's Native Americans there, that means they're breaking the law. We're going to just massacre them and just move on. It's better to get rid of the problem completely than have to deal with it later on. So, yeah. Sad as it is, it's how it was. And this is. Well, it's interesting that. The uh, that the, the the historical record has has been altered now. Yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. Because they were saying at the time there were no survivors, so nobody could tell the tale. But Major Reno's people were there. They didn't actually see the battle that killed General Custer, but they came and rode up on the bodies as they lay on the ground. So they knew something bad had happened. Uh, there were uh, 31 people who survived with injuries that day out of 346, I believe it was, the total number. Uh, I could be completely wrong. Uh, 32 people s- survived with injuries. Of those, nine of them would succumb to their injuries later on. So they were able to tell their story, but nobody wanted to hear the stories that were happening. And the ones that survived... They're not going to sit there and tell you, yeah, 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 we did this. We were stupid and decided to chase them down. Um, they're not going to say that our line broke down and we just started scattering in all directions. They're going to say we were fighting for our lives on that hill. It was our last stand. The general said this had to happen. And um, mm. that's what everybody believed. But at the same time, like I was saying at the beginning, the Native Americans were like, uh, no, they were scattered. There was complete confusion and chaos on the on the ground. We were just able to pick them off one by one like you wouldn't believe. Uh, so that's where uh, Dr. Scott decided that he wanted to really look in to this specific thing to find out if his battlefield archaeology would be able to locate the truth of what actually happened. And... In the course of two years, he completely changed the history books about what happened that day at the Battle of Little Bighorn. General George Custer, this hero, ended up dying on a hilltop, and it wasn't a last stand. He wasn't in a heroic thing. It was a cowardly thing he was doing, trying to chase down these women and children that were trying to flee. He got cut off. And cut down, which, you know, if that thing, if it had happened, if the tables had been turned, if Native Americans had attacked an American, uh, a white village or a white settlement, and the wife, the women and children had started running off and the Native Americans were chasing them, the, uh, the cavalry soldiers would have just completely laid waste to them as well. But, you know, yeah. they, the history books in this case, because the color of the skin it truly annotated who the the villain was on that day. So that's it. That's all I'm going to do about any kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing a deeper dive into that, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's a I... really great, it's one of those great American pieces of history. The answer was solved. The riddle is closed. We can now look in history books and find the actual truth of what happened in 1876 
It was, uh, and thank goodness for metal detectors. That's all I yeah. can say. Yeah, and it was. It's a really great seeing one of the stories where metal detectors and archaeologists were able to uh, operate hand in hand with each other to locate the truth of what had actually happened out there. It's a really good story, and I think so the it's, archaeologists just went down to the local club and said, "Hey, yeah, can you help me out?" <laughs> Doctor Scott was sitting there drinking a beer. He's like, oh, "I got an idea." He just went on to the. Uh, <laughs> Bulletin board. <laughs> Wanted metal detector. So yeah, must have metal detector <laughs> for had, fun and good times. And maybe dead people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you now. If anybody, if I saw something like that, I would jump at that chance. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's why I'm glad I'm I'd in say, Europe. I'm shut hoping up and I'll get take something. my metal detector. <laughs> No, let me Wait. bring my metal detector. That's I'll that's the correct two. answer. Here's one for you. Shut up, take my metal detector. Wait, with me. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Shut up and take me with my metal detector and I will help you. All right. So I think we're coming to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. This has been a really good one. I hope you really enjoyed um, the... Uh, the story about Little Bighorn and finding a little bit of the truth and the story of Dr. Scott and the invention of battlefield archaeology. Um, it's one of those things I love. I love hearing the stories of when things between archaeologists and metal detectors just, you know, are nailed down perfect. Uh, so, 42, what you got going on this week? This week? Yeah. Metal detecting. <laughs> heading out Funnily to. Enough. You're heading out in a couple minutes, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I will be very shortly. Um, and then I will probably go to work and daydream yeah. about metal detecting. Yeah, I got to go back to the doctor this week, find out what's going on with my knee. Hopefully, I can get back out metal detecting this, this, this year. I think I'm going to just say, uh, forget the doctors, I'm going to go out. And that'll be in about a week or two. So we'll see. Oh, but cool. That's it for me. Yeah, because I haven't seen many of your finds out there, Lance. I know. I could. I, I cleaned up my box. Have, I, I cleaned yeah. up my finds box. I got three trays open for 2019. And I'm going to drag my wife out there. We're going to try and find something around here that's really good. And I'm going to get Oh, my, you're taking the missus as well. Yeah, she, she likes metal detecting. She just doesn't have a lot All of time right. to do it. So right. it's going to be great getting her out there. But. Yeah, good. Well, I wish you gold. Yeah, me too. Me too. That'll do it for this it's week. Your year. Your year for gold. <laughs> it is 2019, the year of gold. Also the year of the pig. But anyway. <laughs> this is true. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it from us at GDA Radio Podcast. Uh, we'll see you guys in exactly one week. Make sure you check us out at gdapod.com, the brand new website. You want to see the photos of everything we were talking about today, uh, the find of the week, all the way up to the Battle of Little Bighorn. I'm going to include a, a really large photo collage on there that you can dig through to see the actual battle site, the people out there digging stuff up. It's really interesting stuff. Head on over to gdapod.com and check that out under um, show notes on the links. Also, check us out on Instagram at Global Detection Adventures. You can find me on uh, Twitter at 
Lance Goolsby, all one word. And make sure if you're going to share any of your finds, use the hashtag on both GDA Pod, just like our website, GDA Pod. See, we're keeping it simple on this whole thing. See, I can get smart every once in a while. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, also check us out on Facebook, Global Detection Adventures, and uh, join the group. Start sharing the finds and uh, let us know exactly what you found out there metal detecting. We'd love to take a look. And with luck, next week you'll be the find of the week. Uh, but that's it. Have I forgotten anything? Any of our social media? No, I don't think so. I don't do Twitter, so you won't yeah, find that's me, me there. That's me. <laughs> but also check out if you um, if, if you're so inclined check out my geek podcast there is another you can find the links right on the gda pod t-i-a is the link on there uh just go on there click that button head on over to the other show that's two podcasts for the price of one every week but until next week we'll see you guys out on the field my name is lance Goolsby, be joined by 42 in adelaide australia let's dig it up y'all This show was produced by the TIA Podcast Network.